Today's reading is from Mark chapter 8, verses 1 to 30. During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way, because some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered, But where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. When he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people, and they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 were present. After he had sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, Why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, It is because we have no bread. Aware of the discussion, Jesus asked them, Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home, saying, Don't even go into the village. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do people say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? he asked. Who do you say that I am? Peter answered, You are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Well, hello. My name is Morris. I'm one of the leaders here at Christ Church in Liverpool. Um, it's great that you've joined us online today. I hope sometime in the not too distant future you'll be able to join us in person. But while we're um, meeting like this, thank you so much for tuning in. Um, we're going to look at this quite big section of Mark's Gospel today. So I just am going to talk 
but not very important things for a minute uh, to help you find a Bible if you don't have one, switch it on your phone if you don't have one, or maybe you've got kids running around that need to be given something to do or to eat while you listen. I'll give you a moment to do that. It's Mark 8 we're looking at today. And we're continuing our sir in our series called Recaptivated. It's really a series looking at Jesus again. And if it's the first time that you have heard about Jesus, we hope you'll be drawn in to see how amazing he is. And if you feel like you're pretty familiar with the stories of Jesus, we hope you will see again uh, for a, a new, in a new way, in a brilliant time, a brilliant way, how awesome he is. So that's what we're doing. And I hope that you um, have had a chance to uh, look up oh, your Bible and settle your kids if you've got them. Sometimes when I chat to people who aren't Christians, they say, this belief in God that you have, it's just wish fulfillment. That is, you feel a need in this cold, vast, empty universe to believe in a God who loves you. You especially have that need, you felt need, at a time like this, with so much death and chaos worrying us. Listen, we all feel the need for someone who can have, we can have our hopes anchored to, who's working out some great purpose. We all, we'd all like to believe that, mate, but that doesn't mean that it's right to believe it. It's wish fulfillment. Well, in the passage that we've just had read to us today, this normal guy, Peter, says to Jesus in Mark's gospel, this wandering preacher he's been following around for a couple of years, you are the Christ. Their great hope, Peter's great hope, and the hope of the people that live around him, was for this one figure who they could trust to hold history in his hands, to rule the world well, who we could trust to bring good out of evil, who they could give their lives to, who they could entrust with their very deaths. They felt the need for someone like that. And Peter, by saying you are the Christ, is saying that through Jesus, he's found that person. Jesus, this man, interrupted history. God, the author of the story, stepped into the story. And Peter, by saying this, is saying, I get that you're offering us, Jesus, the rule, the care of a God who loves us, who can be that in our lives at any time, at any stage. And perhaps now, more than ever, we feel Peter's need too. We feel the need for a Christ, a ruler, an anchor, a person in all of history who can be trusted. Not only as a historical figure whose teachings make sense, but actually as a God who we can rely on to be helping us and doing something good in these difficult times. We need a Christ. Now that could be wish fulfilment for me to believe that about Jesus. But do we say to the hungry person who finds some food, oh, it's just wish fulfilment? Will we say to the lonely person at the end of this time when they're reunited with their friends, it's just wish fulfilment? No, we won't. We'll see that the joy for having that need fulfilled brings shows it was a real need. 
Maybe having a Christ, a ruler, someone to depend on. Maybe we are learning right at this moment that that is who we really need. It's a real need, not just a wish. And the end of our passage today, Peter has come to the conclusion that Jesus, a first century Jew, is not a prophet, not just someone with special insight into life, but the Christ, with all the hope and the promise that that word involves. And this book that we're looking at, this biography of Jesus, is written to convince you of that, or if you are convinced, to recaptivate you, to reignite your hope and enjoyment of him. And to do that at this time when our need for a Christ, someone to trust in this violent world of mess and uncertainty, is stronger than ever. Could be wish fulfilment, or it could be a genuine offer. You can read Mark and work it out. Here's the first thing we see about Jesus' rule as the Christ today. Jesus is a generous provider. I saw on the news this week that the rapper Two Chains, whose music I am clearly a real fan of and model my style on him, the rapper Two Chains lives in a state in America that has said restaurants can open again, but he was secretly filmed not opening his restaurant to make money, but getting the people in the restaurant to cook to give meals to homeless people. When you get a little bit of insight into someone powerful like that privately, it makes me think about two genes. You know, if I ever met you personally, I think I'd like you. I think I could trust you because I can see how you treat the little people. Well, this real event in Mark 8 is one of the many pictures of what Jesus is like in Mark that calls to our souls to say, I could recognise him as a king, an anchor and a ruler. Because in verse 2, it's marked by his compassion and care for the little people. And that is supposed to make us think, wow, it would be great if he was in charge. He's teaching many people in a field, 4,000 of them, and he has compassion on them and wants them to eat. Now, that is unusual for a travelling speaker to be worried about that. I went last year to see someone give a public lecture and I paid them to be there and there were no refreshments, certainly not at his expense. But Jesus, the leader, doesn't want these people to be harmed. He cares for them. And he miraculously produces this great feast of bread for thousands of people who had no bread. Now the claim that Jesus was the Christ included a claim that he was divine. He was the God that these people knew from what we call the Old Testament. And the God of the Old Testament met elsewhere in the Bible. He has form in this area. He has great stories of how God has always, when he's found his people in a wilderness, people in a wilderness because they wanted to do what was right by him, he provided for them generously. They weren't really very grateful for it, but he provided for them. God has always been like that. And so there is a wonderful picture here that when we step out of what's normal to meet the God who is in Jesus, like these people did in this story, he has the compassion and the power to look after us. Maybe listening to Jesus means your family thinking you're weird. 
Maybe it has meant you giving up a career you worshipped or a relationship you longed for. Well, the rule of the Christ, the all-powerful, all-ruling King, is compassionate. He will use his power to care for you, even in very unexpected ways. That's his form when we meet him in the Old Testament. And that's a picture of being under his rule now as he feeds these people who need his help, a reason to anchor our hope to him. Watching and knowing and feeling the world is unsafe, we know we need a Christ, someone who can rule over us well, but we are often unsure about handling control of our lives to someone else. Doing that often means stepping out of what is viewed as normal. But you will have to do that in order to listen to Jesus. But I want you to know that whatever the cost is for you, he reaches out with miraculous care for you, no matter how little or insignificant you seem. A lot of the things or people you relied on before to get hope will let you go, but he, he will look after you. But if you've been with us through this series or you've read Mark's Gospel before, then you might notice something strange about this story. It seems to have happened before. Mark seems to have a little bit of problem with his cut and paste and accidentally pasted in this story when it's in chapter 6 as well. That in chapter 6 there's a very similar miracle where Jesus feeds 5,000 people just using a very small number of loaves and fish. I don't think it is a mistake. I think we're supposed to see this twice. We're supposed to think, wow, Jesus is really like this. But despite the fact that this is a repeat miracle, the disciples say this great quote, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? Um, you can imagine the conversation. Do you know, do you know anyone who would be able to miraculously provide bread for people in the middle of nowhere? Oh no, I, I can't think of anyone like that. Can you think of anyone like that? Have you ever seen anyone feed a whole lot of people this way? No, I, I, I've never seen that at all. I don't know, it doesn't say in the text, but I hope Jesus rolled his eyes before he did this miracle. Now, part of him doing this miracle again is that this same miracle is with a different type of people. When Jesus did this before, it was largely Jewish people, his own people. But here he is offering this providing, compassionate, all-powerful care to non-Jewish, non-religious people. So if you have no religious or family qualification to be a Christian, Jesus is still welcoming you in his care, his provision. Whatever your background watching this today, he's inviting you. You don't have to be in some special in-group. But at least part of Mark recording both miracles for us and the disciples' reactions is to show us that, as Jesus says, the disciples are so dull. They did not have a clue what was going on. It never even occurred to them here to think, oh, we've been down this road before. Maybe Jesus can be trusted to deal with a field full of people who don't have any bread, do you think? This leads us on to the next things we see in this passage. There are two responses, dullness and unbelief. Jesus' disciples certainly enter into their comedy genius in this section of Mark's book. 
As we've said, they're mystified about whether anyone among them could provide bread from nowhere. Jesus miraculously does it again. Now then in verse 14, Jesus says to them, Beware the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod. Now admittedly, that is a confusing thing to say. I'm not totally sure what he's getting at, although we'll talk about it in a minute. But they discuss with each other and they say, Oh, it's because we have no bread. Jesus is a bit peckish, guys, do you think? And do you think he's telling us off? Yeah, I think it is, because we didn't, you know, pack any sandwiches. Jesus is hungry. We're all going to go hungry because no one here has got any bread. I think Jesus' reply is basically, guys, bread, not a problem for me. Jesus is frustrated with them. Why are you talking about bread? <laughs> he says. Do you still not see? Don't you remember, he says. And I think they're like grumpy school children. When I broke the five loaves for 5,000, how many basketballs of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for 4,000, how many basketballs of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. Guys, producing bread, not a problem for me. So whatever the yeast of the Pharisees about, not bemoaning my fact of not having any bread and you not bringing any. They're dullness. They're not getting it. But I've got to say, this feeling confused by Jesus, not getting him, it's a common feeling. Maybe you're new to all of this. And you may be watching this and thinking, I just don't get what this guy's talking about. It makes no sense. I'm sort of attracted to what Jesus says, but I don't understand his claims. What he means by trusting Jesus, I don't get it. I don't understand why Christians insist on believing this thing about this issue. You all seem to get it, and I don't. Well, don't worry. Not getting it, being dull about understanding the truth, it's a feature of even the people closest to Jesus throughout his life. And remember, these people are the ones who went on to start the church, to spread the message to the world, to send them all the things we've seen unfold in Christian history started with them, and they were like this, confused. They don't get it. So if that's you, you're in good company, and there is a way through it. We'll see in a minute. If we were gathered together in church now, I'd say to you, have a look around, and you will observe you don't need to be clever to come to Jesus. But this little discussion about bread was provoked by Jesus' comment to beware the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod. Well, Herod was featured earlier in the book. He listened a bit to the message, he was interested, but in the end he didn't want to believe. And so he ended up making some very bad decisions. He rejected Jesus' message deliberately for two reasons, because it would have changed his life too much and because it would have made him look bad in front of his friends. The Pharisees, we all also need to avoid their yeast, the Pharisees had already decided to kill Jesus, and in our passage today, they go say, go on, impress us with a miracle, so we can consider what you're saying. But they've already decided to reject him. 
Herod had already decided that impressing others and protecting his lifestyle was more important and so had no intention of really listening to the message. The Pharisees had decided they didn't want Jesus in charge and put down a test to confirm their own already held opinion. And so Jesus says to the disciples, beware that attitude. It's like yeast. It goes through every part of your life and infects all of your spiritual seeking if you've already decided for some reason you're not going to accept his rule. We talked earlier about wish fulfillment. I believe there is this central miraculous figure of history, the Christ. But my argument, arguing person says, well, you believe it because it would be nice to believe that at a time like this. We're bent towards wanting to believe that. And if we are, I just want to say, well, maybe we're designed to believe it, like hunger is designed to be satisfied with food. But it is interesting that the people who met Jesus had the opposite reaction. Oh, they got what he was saying. He's offering this amazing new security in a fragile world. But it is a world where he is in charge. And the Pharisees have decided in advance they don't want someone else to be in charge, no matter what. And so Jesus is not going to do miracles on demand for them. And Herod has already decided that what people think and his lifestyle matter more than finding the truth. Well, he will not find the truth then. If you're like that, your arrogance will stop you finding the truth. It's like yeast. It will sort, find its way through your whole approach to Jesus. It will poison it all. Beware of it. Actually, your yeast, that type of yeast, will sort away, sort its way through your whole life. If you think, no, Jesus, I'm going to be me. I'm going to love myself first. I'm never going to take God's view of what's right and what's wrong. I'm going to blame other people for the bad stuff that comes out of me. You'll ruin every relationship in your life. But that's a talk for a different day. Maybe you long for a Christ, someone to pin your hopes to, but you say, I'm not accepting what he says if he doesn't agree with me about this, if he won't protect this bit of my life, if he doesn't give me this, well, then I'm not listening. Unless he writes in pink sky writing or gives me this particular partner that I want, does this miraculous thing for me, well, if not, then I'm not interested. But of course, if the Christ is the person who rules everything, that's not actually letting him rule, and it will poison your search for truth. If I was speaking about this even six weeks ago, I'd have said something different than I would have said to you today. If our normal Sunday morning crowd who were gathered together, I'd have said something like this. If being the life and soul of the party, or sleeping with your girlfriend, or having an affair with someone in your workplace, or your views on gender, or your problems with the church, or your glittering career are stopping you really considering whether Jesus might be in charge, and you're pushing his rule away because of that, beware. But one good thing that might come out of this very bad situation we're in at the moment is that those things stopping us coming to Jesus turned out to be pretty fleeting anyway, didn't they? Who knows when we'll be able to think about those things again? Who knows when we'll be able to turn to them to try and save us again? 
And that means maybe in this moment, there's more chance of us really approaching Jesus saying, listen, we just need you to keep us safe, no matter the cost to the things I think matter, no yeast, just me needing your help. I remember once discussing the claims of Christianity in a group of people, some Christians, some not. And um, one person said, uh, one of the Christians said to one of the people who wasn't a Christian, listen, if I could prove to you 100% right now that Jesus rose from the dead, which is his claim, would you say, okay, whatever the cost to me, I really have to listen to you now because you rose from the dead. You, would you say, okay, you win, life belongs to you, because you rose from the dead, I've got to listen to you. And the guy who wasn't a Christian said, of course I wouldn't. There's too many other things that are important to me. Well, beware the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod. That guy was never going to find the truth of Jesus being the Christ if he's not actually there to find a ruler. And maybe if you are a Christian and you spend time wondering, why do I don't seem to get anywhere in the Christian life? I don't seem to impact the world that I want to. I don't seem to have this closeness with Jesus that I would love. It could be the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod too. It could be that you said to Jesus, okay, you rule and I want you to save me, but not over this, not over that. I don't want to look bad. I don't want to give up this particular bit of my life. Well, beware, beware, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. Don't interpret all my discussions about yeast as saying that Jesus needs you to pop out to Tesco's now to get him a loaf of bread. He does not need that. And that is what he's saying to the disciples. Third thing that we see, Jesus spits. There's a song we get to sing every Christmas at Christchurch called Jesus Saves to the tune of Jingle Bells. Jesus saves, Jesus saves, Jesus is the way. Well, I wonder whether we could have a song uh, based on this passage. Verse 8, Jesus spits, Jesus spits, he is not the pits or something. It's totally bizarre, this next story. People bring a blind man and ask Jesus to touch him. They know, as well as we do as readers of the book, that Jesus can deal with problems like this by simple touch, sometimes even less, just a word. Jesus leads this man out by himself and spits on his eyes. Not only that, but he seems to sort of undershoot the healing the first time. Did you notice that? The man sees it first a little bit and then Jesus sort of has to have another go and then he sees everything clearly. The pattern is that this man has to go through an immensely humbling experience to be able to see. And he doesn't see everything at first. He has to go back and be humbled again. Remember I said, if you are dull like the disciples, you look at them and you know you're like that too. You think, will I ever get this? Well, the blind man's healing is a picture of how you might. If you're willing to have this sort of visceral, intimate, embarrassing encounter with Jesus, your eyes will be open to the truth. You won't be able to see everything all at once. 
But as you maintain being humble before Jesus, needing his help, you'll be able to see more and more. Peter somewhat gets who Jesus is in the next bit of the story. And I think that's because the healing of this blind man is a picture of how we slowly but truly come to see who Jesus is. Dull as we might be, if we're willing to come to Jesus and let him into the most intimate, the most close, the most possibly humiliating relationship with us. I love the way the man sees men that look like trees walking first before he sees clearly. If you're a Christian from any length of time, that will have been your experience. You were humbled enough once to become a Christian, to see enough of Jesus, to trust him that he's the Christ. But as you learn to be humble below Jesus and you see your own faults and feelings, something you messed up, a way that you have been that is wrong, as you're humbled, you come bringing that most personal and private thing to Jesus. It's visceral, it's intimate, but you see just how amazing he is, again, as you bring that to him, more clearly than ever. So if you're dull, as many of us are, there is a way through that. Come to Jesus. Ask for his help. Not with conditions, but ready to go through whatever it takes to get to the truth. Whatever is the spiritual equivalent of letting Jesus spit in your face, we do it. Because we need a Christ. Never more so than now. I was reading recently about a university professor who began reading the Bible. And the field that she worked in, while no one even believed that words could really communicate truth, the community that she was part of had an extremely antagonistic relationship with Christians. The people she was impressing usually thought her even considering the Bible was all wrong. They hated me for what they saw was turning against them, she says. It was humiliating to go to Jesus and say everything I've thought and being built towards in my community and all the people I've respected, they're wrong. But his words cut me to my heart. So I had to even be willing to give that up too. And if you're going to really experience the rule of Jesus in your life, it's going to involve I'm spitting in your face, admitting you were wrong about that, confessing to people you struggle with this, on the floor before God knowing what you're like. But if you do that, what Jesus will become to you more clearly and more heartwarmingly is that figure of hope and strength that you need. It will become, he will become ever more clear to you. Today, we need a Christ, someone to rule well, to put our hope in, perhaps more than many of us have ever needed that before in our lives. And there is Jesus offering his help to the little people, using his amazing ruling power to care for those who've come out to him who need his help. But beware the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod. You need to be ready to lower yourself let get rid of what's important to you before him and then 
then you will see him as this ruling, caring Lord ever more clearly. Let's pray together. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for Jesus. Thank you that he loves us and cares for us. He is a generous giver. And we pray, please humble us. Please open our eyes to see him more clearly. Give us the comfort and the strength that comes from knowing him as the Christ, we pray. In Jesus' name.